You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Up to this point, the Gospel of John, uh, an eyewitness account of the Apostle and one of the best friends of Jesus, that is St. John, has been telling us about Jesus, introducing us to Jesus. And for the most of this book, he's been introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people that do not get Jesus. That even though there were people who were close to Jesus and walked alongside him, they still had questions that they were unable to answer and they missed out on who Jesus was. Now, I believe that's an invitation to you and to me that maybe if you're a skeptic in the room and, and maybe you come with a lot of questions and doubts about who Jesus is, then John invites us into that. He invites us closer to say, okay, bring your questions because even the people closest to Jesus didn't get Jesus. And the rain, main reason they didn't get Jesus is because What was really important about Jesus, what he was going to accomplish, we see zoomed in on here in chapter 19. That is for those people that thought Jesus was simply a really good teacher or some sort of great magician. They missed it. They they thought Jesus was going to set up some earthly kingdom and they missed it and, and the impact that Jesus would have. Even so much that you and I are sitting here in a room, a continent and an ocean away, 2,000 years later, talking about this Jesus. That impact that they thought might have been something they could comprehend is beyond. And so, in chapter 19, as all of the Gospel writers do, John slows down. He zooms in on, over the last several chapters, the last week of the life of Jesus on earth, and even the last 24 hours of his life on earth. Such that he's given us a prayer for his disciples, a farewell commendation to them. But then, as all of the Gospel writers do, they zoom in on what is most important, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And so beginning in chapter 19, Jesus is betrayed and handed over. A great miscarriage of justice and two kingdoms collide, the kingdom of earth and God's sovereign, or excuse me, the kingdom of heaven and God's sovereignty, the kingdom of earth and man's will. And they clash to here, here together. And the intersection is cataclysmic and this conflict ends in death and suffering as it always does so beginning in verse 16 of chapter 19 Jesus is handed over by Pontius Pilate after being betrayed and abandoned by his own disciples and even turned over by his own people and the religious authorities who don't know what to do with him beginning in verse 16 so he that is Pilate delivered him that is Jesus over to them, that is, the Pharisees and the soldiers, to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king, or excuse me, the, uh, excuse me. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, 
one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for, the, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. My prayer is this, this becomes God's word to us, not as just ink on a page, but as the very presence of God and the Word of God for the people of God. John has told us that in the meaning of all that is heavenly and perfect and all that is earthly and sinful, Jesus stands at the intersection. These two kingdoms collide and they cannot coexist. And Jesus is the intersection of the eternal and the temporal. Jesus is where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world unite. Jesus is where heaven and earth come together as one. But Jesus also shows us that unless something drastic takes place, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world cannot coexist side by side. 
And Jesus shows us what happens when those two worlds collide. Apart from Jesus, the meeting of God and humans is gruesome. It ends in violence always. And yet Jesus steps right into the middle of that conflict. That intersection between all that is holy and heavenly and all that is corrupt and earthly. And He bears the brunt of those two differences. He steps into that expanse and unites it. And something amazing happens. We saw the last uh, bit of this chapter, the two counterfeit kingdoms that seem to serve for us as, as fakes of what real joy and real control look like. That is, the religious elite and then the political elite both meet Jesus and simply don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with Him at all. And so the highly religious people meet Jesus and their only conclusion is, well, if we can't act on our own to please God, if God is whole, too holy for us to please and, and someone will have to actually unite us to God apart from our own works, then we might kill this person for saying that He knows the way and He is the way and He is that truth and He is that life. But then the political sphere also runs head on with Jesus. Doesn't know what to do with Him. And so while Jesus confronts the, the limits of our own political loyalties and our own religiosity, so much so that their only solution is to get together and say, this man must be silenced and we must kill him. And an unholy alliance between the political elite and the religious elite, who normally would hate one another, both are confronted with what Jesus regularly does. He provokes our previous loyalties. He provokes them. Our way to the good life. He comes and says it won't work. Our way of defining ourselves, asserting ourselves, expressing ourselves, thinking that we can really know ourselves. Jesus says, no, that's not the way either. You have to look to me. And, and so these people represent for us, as John tells us, what you and I would likely do if we met Jesus face to face as well. We would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, here's, here's what's true. Here's what I know, and here's the best plan I have. And Jesus would say, nope, that won't work. And maybe your political loyalty, you would say, this is what's going to change the world. This is what's going to help and fix everything. And Jesus said, nope, that's not going to work either. They, people need a, an eternal kingdom that changes their hearts. Not an external barrier to modify their behavior. And these people represent what we would likely do. So that in verse 16, we see the turning of this story to where they say, we can only but kill this man. And so for Pilate, he's caught, isn't he? He knows with hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, if he does something to make them angry, you see the limits of his own political power, right? The minute they turn into a mob, political power goes out the window. And so he's left like... A, Seven different times we see in the Gospels, three times in this chapter, he says, this man's innocent. I don't think there's a charge against him that deserves death. But what is Pilate forced to do? He has to give them what they want because, again, you see the limits of political power. The religious elite meet Jesus and accuse him of blasphemy. He says and he equates himself with being God and the Son of God. We can't have that. We're the people who bring God's presence through religious activity we're the people who mediate god's presence somebody else can't come and take our place and so they both get together and as you see in beginning in verse 16 they turn him over to kill him but what i want you to see here and this is interesting because i said last week it would be tempting to walk through the details of this crucifixion and simply stir up your empathy and to stir up your sorrow and pity for jesus really to stir up your sense of of 
pain and sorrow for this person who was unjustly killed. And most of the other gospel writers do that. But notice, John goes to no pains to walk through the details of the crucifixion. He just simply says, they crucified Jesus. So I want to give a few details, but I want you to see that that isn't his goal. His goal isn't necessarily to stir us up to feel sorrow for Jesus, but instead, his goal is to do something else. His goal is to stir up something amazing. To see that Jesus might be doing something beyond what we could ask or imagine. You see, the death and burial of Jesus, while obscene and gruesome, certainly obscene, certainly gruesome, while those are on display here in the crucifixion, the death and burial of Jesus is also the divine and glorious plan of God. I've got to get you to see that I could sit there and walk through the details of crucifixion. It says here that, and this is consistent with what we know about the crucifixion, but I could walk you through the details and make you feel bad for Jesus. Make you think, oh, what an awful and unfair thing. But, but don't miss what John does. He goes in Old Testament teacher mode. Did you catch that? At every single turn, he said, and Jesus did this. And, and, and so that you and I would know that this wasn't an accident, he says, it fulfilled the Scriptures. And this awful thing happened. And it was exactly like the Scripture said would happen. And then this other awful thing happened, which is exactly what the Scripture said would happen. This awful thing happened. The death and burial of Jesus, the most obscene and gruesome miscarriage of justice the world has ever seen, is still the divine and glorious plan of God. And so at every single juncture, he points out the ways that even the worst possible thing that could happen doesn't stop God's plan. I mean, this has to happen. Romans, the book of Romans, Apostle Paul tells us that the mind of the flesh is against and hostile towards what God is doing. And so it makes sense that we would respond, that people would respond to Jesus in a way that dehumanizes Him. But what John wants us to see here is that God is working not just in spite of these things, but He's actually walking through these. God is working through them. And don't miss this. When men have done their worst, in a very real sense, the worst possible way to kill a person, the most public, most painful way to kill a person, when people have done their worst, in the most awful, gruesome way, you can still see the glory of God in Christ. And that's what John wants us to see. John doesn't want us just to feel bad for the suffering that Jesus endured, although that certainly is true. They would have probably prepared the vertical spire outside of the city to where after the beating that Jesus endured, he would have carried his own, the crossbar, probably not the entirety of the cross. That wouldn't have been uh, other new, uh, extra biblical, other first and second century sources tell us that's not typically how it would have worked, but he would have carried that as best we could, he could. The other gospel writers say that a man, Simon, had to come in because Jesus was so beaten and bloodied and exhausted, he had to carry it for him. And it's awful. It's terrible. And you would think, well, how on earth could John convince us that the worst possible thing to happen to the most innocent possible man is a good thing? And the way he does it is to remind us at every single juncture, God was in control. God was still sovereign. And he does this by pointing us to multiple different references of Scripture. So I want to walk through those things. And the death of Jesus we see here is not an accident. Instead, it is under control. 
And God, even in Christ, is sovereign over this. And John, even though he makes room for suffering, he also greatly emphasizes the sovereign plan of the Father that's coming through the Son's obedience. And that begins even with the first few words. You see, God's plan cannot be thwarted. And God's work for us in Christ, I want to invite you to believe, even though it looks awful and gruesome, is for our good and it's for our joy. So I want to list, as, as we see these Scripture references pop up, I want to point them all out to you, and I've tried to reword them in a way that is encouraging to you. So even beginning in verse 16, I want you to see that being excluded does not thwart God's plan. Verse 16, it says, So he delivered him. That is, Pilate, he, he turned him over, handed him over. Romans 8.32 explains it this way, that God spared not his own son, but literally handed him over for us all. But I want you to see this is a callback. This is, a, this is a, another scripture reference so that you and I would hear what's going on here, even in its gruesomeness. And remember, God's not out of control. So Leviticus 16, and this is also in other places in the Old Testament. Exodus 29, Leviticus chapter 4, outlines the, how the scripture would say that sacrifices for people's sin ought to be carried out. And so in verse 27, in the, in the chapter full, I encourage you, a chapter full of the outline of what the sacrificial lamb would look like or the sacrificial bull ought to look like. At the very end, it says, and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried where? Outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And so when John says in verse 16 and 17, they took Jesus and then in 70, they went out. It's no accident. It's no accident. And he wants us to see that being excluded, being excluded does not thwart God's plan. In fact, right here we see it is part of God's plan. Look how the author of Hebrews even explains what's going on as he's being excluded. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places. Speaking specifically of Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. The, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned where? Outside the camp. Well, thank you, author of Hebrews. What's that got to do with us? Verse 12 tells us, so Jesus also, what? He suffered where? Outside the camp. Why? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore now, let us go to him where? Outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Don't miss this. Jesus being sent out, handed over is not an accident for John. He's saying this is exactly what happens in the Passover. This is exactly what happens when we celebrate God's atonement for sin. When this sacrifice was made, we would take that sacrificed animal and we would cast them out. Because as a sin offering, it has to be thrown away from us. And Jesus says, I am that Lamb of God. I am that sacrificial Lamb. And we see that even to be cast out, to be thrown out, handed over, for John is simply a way of saying, yeah, that's how God works. And be encouraged even to be excluded. And I know some of you, that's one of the greatest fears you have. You're terrified that you'll be rejected. You're terrified that, that the next next bit of news is going to be bad news of how the people that you thought you could count on are actually ready to cast you out. And don't miss the good news he says here. 
even being cast out and excluded, doesn't thwart God's plan. In fact, John wants us to know that's exactly God's plan. Next, I want you to see that being mocked and jeered does not thwart God's plan. Now, if you want to, you can follow me there, but I would encourage you to to make a note for your reading this week, Psalm 22. And so for the rest of the chapter, he's going to quote Psalm 22 off and on in profound ways. The other gospel writers do the exact same thing. But notice what we see. If if you want to look there, you can look in verse 6, but I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. That even to be with the outcast, excuse me, does not thwart God's plan. So in verse 16, what does the psalmist say? He cries out to the Lord, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. Did you catch verse 17 and 18? He went out. And then what happened where he was crucified? They pierced his hands, pierced his feet, nailed him to a cross, as was their custom. And with him, what? Two others. One on either side. And we're meant to say, John, how could this be a good thing? How could it be a good thing that Jesus is counted among the outcasts, the criminals? And John says that's exactly God's plan. And just like the psalmist in Psalm 22 who cries out for God's mercy to be delivered, Jesus, who quotes Psalm 22 and the other gospel writers point to us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the hand of God working. In the same way that I know some of us are afraid of being excluded, I know many of you really, and this, I, I use this language because I, I want you to see how juvenile it really is and but it's also a heart cry for many of us. I know some of you really wish you could sit at the cool kids' table. I know, I know there are people that like drive by with a certain car or live in a certain apartment or house, or they wear certain clothing, and every time you see it, there's something in it that makes you go like, I wish I could be, I wish I could be cool. I wish I could be friends with those people. I wish I could belong to that group of people. I know that. It's that cry out for belonging that God has built into even the fabric of our DNA. To want to be attaching, to want to belong. But even in the midst of being cast out with those who don't belong, notice what John tells us. It doesn't stop God working for our good. Did you catch that? Well, Jesus is counted amongst the thieves and and we're meant to go, yeah, that's exactly what the psalmist told us would happen. That's exactly God's plan. And my encouragement to you, if you feel like an outcast, don't run away from that. Recognize maybe that's a stirring that God's doing so that you'll realize what true belonging is. And he allowed Jesus to be cast out completely so that we would belong. Did you catch even the specifics? My hands and my feet are pierced. It's a really interesting prophecy from Psalm 22. In some sense, he's not only just predicting the crucifixion, but this psalm would have been written before crucifixion was even a thing. And so there's a sense in which Psalm 22 not only is a prophecy that Jesus would be crucified, the the perfect suffering lamb would be crucified and pierced in this way, but it even predicts a form of killing that at this point when the psalm was written wouldn't have even been in existence. And you're meant to go like, well, how, how on earth would a, a psalmist, a person writing a poem about God's plan for redemption, how on earth would they know such a thing? And John's answer is because God's not 
out of control. There's not an accident here. God is fully sovereign even over the worst of things. Next thing you see is that being mocked and jeered doesn't thwart God's plan. Even being ridiculed doesn't stop God's plan. Did you see what happens next? There's this little little spat over what Jesus' title really is. And Pilate, I think, makes a jab at the Jews here, right? He says, the king of the Jews. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He knows he's innocent, but he's, he's in a spot where he has no choice. So he's like, fine, I'll kill him, but I'm going to throw a little jab. Like, yeah, here's your king. And, and they, it, it stings, doesn't it? Their first thought is, whoa, 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 whoa. He's not our king. Maybe he said he was our king, but there's something amazing. He, he has a couple of different mocks, right? And one of them comes from the first few chapters of John. The first one, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember? Do you remember when Jesus, the very first thing he does, and he calls disciples to himself, the mock and jeer is what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now fill in the blank with that place you don't like and everyone there you don't like. Maybe it was the high school that you were rivals with, right? Fill in the blank. Can anything good come from Iowa? (laughs) North Dakota? Oh, re- yeah, really, really. But, but notice, this, this, is, this should hit home for us, right? The prophecies uh, tell us, and we saw this in the first few chapters, that out of the Galilee, out of the north, nowhere, right? The sticks, out of podunk will come this servant. And, and God will do something, and here, here's what I want you to see. Can anything good come from the flyover states? Can anything good come from the Midwest? Won't it have to come from like the East Coast or New York City? Won't it have to come from Los Angeles? Do you get it? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Pilate makes a jeer. And he says, this guy's a nobody. And what, is, what happens? Well, it ends up being a powerful epithet. It becomes a powerful statement of God's victory. I can use whomever, whenever, however I want. Don't you dare cast off something that we, you, heard, you heard as we began with Isaiah 53. He was smitten, stricken. He wasn't even recognized and esteemed. He was just a guy. Jesus, Yeshua, was a common name. He might as well have been named, I don't know, Mike or Andy, right? Or Austin. There's a lot of, I know there's a lot of them in the room, right? Can just a dude from a place no one cares about be anything? And what? What happens? He means it as a jab. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And what happens? He writes it in every single language, and we saw last week, he wrote it in every single language, and it's fulfilled in Revelation 5, that every single tribe, tongue, and ethne, people, and language would bow at the name of Jesus. And what Pilate meant as a joke, God used for his glory. Have you ever been the butt of a joke? I know some of you from Iowa and North Dakota just were. I apologize. <laughs> Have you ever been made fun of? Don't don't miss that. It doesn't thwart God's will. God can use the mocks, the jeers, the taunts of the enemy for his good, for for his glory and our good. Isn't that the taunt that we read? And Paul writes to to the Corinthians right out of the book of Hosea. Oh, death, where is your sting? right? I'm going to kill you. Paul's like, fine. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Death, where's your sting? What, what, is, that, is that all you've got? Do you get it? 
the worst taunt, the worst jeer, God uses for His glory and for the good of His people. Being mocked doesn't stop or thwart God's plan. Now go back to Psalm 22, the sixth verse. Notice this, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me, what? They mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 8. Here's the taunt. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I know for many of you to even be here and to profess faith in Jesus means that even your own family and some friends think you're nuts and crazy. And maybe they've even cast you out. I know in most parts of the world, to profess faith in Jesus means to lose family and lose friends. And we're fortunate. That's rarely the case. I mean, it sort of exists. Most people in the Midwest won't reject you for believing in Jesus. They'll just reject you for actually believing in Jesus. They won't make fun of you for being a Christian. They'll make fun of you for actually believing that Jesus is Lord. Don't miss this. Even in the mockery, even in the jeers and the taunts, God has not thwarted. God has not stopped. And John wants us to see, well, that sounds awful, right? It's another awful thing. They're just making fun of him. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly, that's, it's, it's, like a, it's like a trap, right? Like, come on in. Like, well, surely God's not working in this. They're making fun of him. Yeah, come on in. Come on in. Next thing you see is losing your possessions does not thwart God's plan. Most of the depictions of the crucifixion that you'll see involve Jesus wearing some sort of a loincloth. And most people I've even heard uh, are often kind of offended by how little clothing Jesus is wearing in those depictions. And it's really ironic because they're being as modest as they can be. We know for a fact people were always crucified naked. They were crucified naked. In fact, we see extra-biblical sources that tell us that, that when they would crucify a woman, they would turn her around because they couldn't bear, the, the public could not bear to see the face of a woman under such torment. A Roman citizen couldn't even be crucified unless it was a direct order of Caesar because it was too despicable, too shameful, too awful for anyone who was a Roman citizen to endure. And so it was reserved for the outcasts, for the people who didn't belong, the people under the power of empire. And so in verse 23, the soldiers crucified Jesus, and what did they do? They took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one for each soldier and also the tunic. Don't miss this. I'm going to take you back to Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me. Now in this, this is important for those of you, I know you love, I know you love fluffy, uh, your, your, what do they call it, fur, what, fur family is what people with pets, you heard this, okay, fair enough, you have to, you have to go out of that, dogs in this particular day and age were the, were the ones who ate the scraps, right, and not your delicious scraps where you let them lick the plate and then put it back in the cabinet, you sick, sick person, <laughs> you know what that dog licked, seriously, come on, I used to have a dog. I'm just shaming myself here, really. I did the same thing. Uh, you have to go back to that day. You have to go back to see dogs as scavengers who did what? They ate dead things. Right? The, the, great, the great prophecy over Queen Jezebel was what? 
that the dogs would come and eat her remains. The worst and most awful judgment. And so when he says dogs surround me, he's not talking about, your, again, your fur family, right? God bless that fur family. He's talking about a ravenous, starving animal who wants to feed on your dead carcass. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, what? They cast lots. And for those who love Jesus, we see even his family is there. Certainly would have looked at Jesus and his nakedness and thought, it can't get any worse than this. They've stripped him naked and they've taken their clothes and then they're just, they're just trying to do something with him and make a profit off of them. And John says, I know, I know it seems like things are awful, but this is exactly what God is going to use to bring about his glory. This is exactly what God's going to use. Notice the particular garment they fought over in verse 23, but the tunic was seamless. You would think losing these garments is going to be the worst possible thing. John preaches a sermon right here in these verses, and I want you to hear it. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. He uses this word, anothen. Now, I don't care that you know Greek, but in chapter 3, do you remember when, when Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus, who shows up here again? He says, you, you can't be a part of God's kingdom unless you are born again. But the word again isn't really there. He says, unless you are born anothen, which literally means from above. You can't see God unless you're born from above, which is, and the best we could do is born again, or that born of divine means. And he uses that word again. Did you catch that? So that we would remember what it is that's going on here. This tunic is a mirror. It's an image through which we see God working, not from the bottom up, but from the top down. Remember the Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus died, the veil that separated all of the people from the Holy of Holies was torn from where? Top to the bottom. So you would know who tore it. As if to say this garment is, a, is an homage. It, it's, a, it's a seamless garment, garment woven where? From above to the bottom. You know where else you'll see a seamless tunic? I'm going to encourage you. You'll see this in other places in the Old Testament. You see, there's several chapters in, in Leviticus and even Exodus that talk about the special garments that the priests, the Levitical priests would wear. Now, the word priest isn't necessarily a word we use often. It's, it's, it, we sometimes miss it's from the word pontus or pontifex. It literally means weight or bridge builder. It's where we get the word, here we go, rednecks. It's where we get the word pontoon from. Right? And so, a pontoon that holds up, like kind of builds a floating, br a party bridge, right? That's this word. This word priest. And, and he's already, John has already told us what the false priests look like, right? The false priests turn him over. Here's what the real priest looks like. And they look at this tunic and they're like, this is a seamless tunic. We have to do something. We, we can't just tear this. And I want you, John's like, exactly, that's exactly what people would have thought. And so my favorite is in Ezekiel chapter 44. The description of this tunic, this robe as we would call it, in verse 19, and all of 19 puts it this way, and when they go out, speaking of the priests, now, Notice, where'd they go? Where do they go? It's a big deal. It's not an accident, John says. When they go to the outer court, they leave the outer court of the people, leaving the Holy of Holies, going outside. 
they shall what? Put off the garments in which they have been ministering, that is the robe, that seamless tunic, and lay them in the holy chambers. And here's this weird part. Why? Why would they do that? And they shall put on other garments. Listen to this. Lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. As if to say the priest, the the pontoon, the bridge builder, even his garments can't be held by the average person. But what does John say happened to his garments? The people who killed him are the ones who get to hold it. Oh, don't miss it. God is doing something here. And even the enemies of God, we find, get blessed by the holiness of God through Jesus. Those that even were scrounging for his clothing, you would have thought, John, doesn't get any worse than this. And John's like, I know you would think that. You might think that. You might think, you might think like a, you know, a, a pagan Roman soldier holding the priestly garments of our high priest Jesus is a bad thing, but we call it the gospel. I want to throw in a couple things here also that you see in the bystanders there. You see our family. They divide up the garments, in verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his... Now I'm going to let you figure out what that is. Wherever you're from, whatever your mother's sister is called. I don't want to start an aunt-aunt war, but that's who was there. <laughs> and Mary, the wife of Clopas, we probably believe this was Salome, probably the mother of John himself even. James and John, remember the sons of thunder, the troublemakers, the punks, their mom's there. And she's a brazen woman. Remember, she and the other Gospels went to Jesus and said, hey, would you reserve a spot on your right and your left in your kingdom for my two boys? They're all there. And so I would just offer a commendation to women. I have been blessed by the faithfulness of women in my life. Specifically, just like women like this, Faithful women close to Jesus have blessed me more than I know. I'm not saying that men close to Jesus haven't also, but John doesn't tell us that, does he? Probably in this particular time, if if some of the followers of Jesus, those men would have shown up, they would have most likely been executed or arrested alongside Jesus. It was uncommon that women would be associated with those rebellions. And so they have the right to be there probably more so than the other disciples. If the disciples showed their face, they're probably more likely to get in some trouble the women taking advantage of this do what? They're right there. And I have been blessed. I have been blessed by spiritual mothers. I've been blessed by my biological mother. Don't get me wrong. I'm going I'm to call her on Mother's Day and do the thing. Thanks, Mom. I love you, right? But something else happens here. Jesus shows us a new eternal family. Look at the way he addresses his mother, when Jesus saw his mother, he uses the word woman. Now again, when you do call your mom on Mother's Day, don't use the word woman. <laughs> Unless she knows you're quoting the Gospel of John, in which case, go for it. But, but this word has been used a couple times before in this text. And I don't want you to think that it's a, a word of disrespect, but instead it's a word of respect. It's more like the word madam. The first time we saw it, do you remember this? His mom came and said, hey, there's no wine at this wedding. And we're like, well, how on earth will we celebrate how we celebrate a, a wedding rightly? And what does Jesus says? Me. 
right? And he takes the purification water so that someone will come along and go, what have they done with all this? How will we make ourselves clean? Jesus is like, me, right? He comes to Jesus, hey, we're out of wine, and what does he say to her? Madam, what's this to you and to me? A word of respect. Could have called her mom, but he calls her madam. Do you know the other time we see the word madam used? The woman at the well. A woman disgraced and cast out. And Jesus says, madam. And so when he sees his mother, he doesn't call her by a biological mother name because he has something else in mind. He has a new eternal family such that remember when they thought he was crazy for preaching and teaching and picking fights and causing riots? They said, hey, your mom and sister and brother are here. And what does Jesus say? Who, who's my mom? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? Gospel of Mark tells us, the one who does the will of my father, that's my mother, that's my father, that's my brother, that's my sister. That's my real family, such that now he calls his disciples to even be willing to hate their own father and mother and children and their own lives for this new, transformative, eternal, spiritual community. Maybe the better way to see this is Jesus is building a new family through his darkest hour. The worst possible time. What is he doing? He's building a new family. He looks to his mom and says, Madam, and he looks to the beloved disciple. Right? This is John's code word for himself. The beloved. Don't think, again, he's like, I'm, I'm, the, one, I'm, I'm the one loved by Jesus, the one reclining on Jesus' bosom. Right? Remember, don't, don't think that he's somehow a weakling. Remember, this is one of the sons of thunder. Right? This, is one of the, this is James and John. This is one of the punk brothers. And yet he goes, of the punk brothers, I'm, I'm, even of these outcasts, I'm, I'm loved by Jesus. And so he looks at his mother and looks at John and says, Madam, this is now your son. And he says, you, the beloved disciple, behold, this is now your mom. It's interesting, even the biological mother of Jesus jumps into this supernatural community. And that's what I would encourage you with, that maybe, maybe for you, like you've lost family because of Jesus. Maybe for some of you, this means that some of you, I, I don't know, she assumes a brand new stance in this movement, right? A brand new stance. And she is assigned again as mother, but not as the mother of her biological son, but instead as the mother of a fellow disciple. So for some of you, I would encourage you, this is a powerful example, isn't it not? Some of you need to take Jesus' assignment and take it into your family that you weren't born into. And some of you need to become spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers to the spiritual orphans that are around you. Maybe for some of you, you need to become spiritual children, spiritual sons and spiritual daughters because you know what a spiritual orphan you are. But just notice, at the darkest possible hour, Jesus takes time to say, I'm going to start a movement. It's going to be a supernatural family. You were born naturally into this family, but this new kingdom you have to be born again from above into, and here's what it's going to look like. At my death, I will be able to link people together, and at the foot of the cross, a new supernatural community is built. That's what the church is isn't it? I mean, maybe, uh, maybe hopefully otherwise we wouldn't have anything else in common except that we just both bumped into each other at the cross and Jesus goes, you're family now. And praise God uh, for the spiritual mothers at the foot of the cross who were close to Jesus, who have served and helped me. Notice also being in need does not thwart God's plan. It says, after this, Jesus knew everything was coming to an end. He knew the finishing of his project on earth was over he says i thirst go back to psalm 22 for me verse 15 says my strength has dried up like a pot shirt a pot shard 
couple years ago, we walked through Psalm 22, and we walked through with that a, a broken or like a dried up piece of ceramic material. And he says, what, my tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Even in the Psalm 22, we see Jesus fulfilling it. This, in order, again, did you catch that parenthetical remark in verse 28? Jesus is thirsty, it must be awful. And John's like, no, this is exactly what God intends to save people through. But one of the other places that's most likely a fulfillment of is Psalm 69. It says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, don't miss, the other gospel writers tell us that when he came up to carrying his cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That would have been a sedative, something to dull the pain of crucifixion and and to calm the nerves because it was going to be a day or two or three of absolute utter torture and misery. But he refused it. He wanted to have his wits about him as he went to the cross. But then he takes what was probably like a a cheap sour wine vinegar, like probably apple cider vinegar is the closest, maybe fermented enough, but something that the the Mabit even has served as kind of a stimulant and the other soldiers would have likely been carrying it around, using it for different things. And so he says, I thirst. And what does he say? What does the psalmist in chapter 29 and 21st verse say? It gave me sour wine to drink. Even being without, being in need, thirsting does not thwart God's plan. In fact, I would encourage you where you thirst and hunger the most, God is sending Jesus to heal the deepest. This is the weirdest one. It sounds funny just to say, but it, it is really the crux of this text. A crux, that's it, never mind. If all these things don't thwart God's plan, this is the wildest one, and it is the confession of Christians everywhere. Being dead does not thwart God's plan. Being dead does not stop God's plan. And look how John points out what happened. Go to Isaiah 53, verse 9 with me. And they made his grave with the wicked, right? He's cast out. He's not buried amongst his family. He's buried in a stranger's tomb. But, but he throws in something, what? With the wicked and with a rich man in his death. What did John tell us about his burial? Two very prominent men, Joseph of Arimathea. Every gospel writer tells us about him. This follower of Jesus who evidently is a a fairly well-to-do real estate mogul. He happens to have some property nearby. And he says, look, I've got a place, I've got a tomb, a place we've hewn out for my family. No one has ever been buried there before. Let's do that. And then Nicodemus, the man who came at night, right, who was ashamed to know Jesus, finally, when he sees Jesus lifted up, he comes in at his death. He says, I- I've got something. And he gives them, just catch the pounds of incense. That's, the, that's, that's, that's how much you would marry a famous or rich or a prominent king or, or some dignitary And even in death, God's plan is not thwarted. Isaiah 53 says, this is going to be weird. The suffering servant is going to be buried among the wicked, but it's going to be random, just so you'll know, not to be be discouraged when it happens. There's going to be a rich guy who's going to show up. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And John says, even being dead doesn't thwart God's plan. Even being dead is buried in a way that even is coincides with what God is doing. Don't miss that. What that is for a Christian is a call to great faith and confidence. It is a call to great courage. Because think about it, if God could use the most vile circumstances to actually confirm that He's in control and He's actually working things out for good, then what could He do in your life and mine? Think about what this means. Like, 
if the worst thing that someone can do is kill you, and that's not the end of the story, then what do we have to fear? If God could even be working in that. Notice what John tells us. Not a single one of the awful things in this chapter were able to stop God's good purpose for His people. Not a single one. And so here's my encouragement to you. Lift up your head. Look and behold Jesus. Lift up your head, not because your life is, isn't awful. Maybe it is. Maybe your life is the worst. But lift up your head, not because it's awful, or not because it's not awful, but because it's not over. Notice, this may be the saddest chapter in the whole Bible, right? The worst, the most innocent man, and through the greatest miscarriage of justice, subjected to the worst possible, the worst possible torture. It's probably the saddest chapter in the Bible. But don't miss, it's not the last chapter in the Bible. Friend, you may be coming into this room in the saddest chapter of your life. I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe one thing I need to say, hey, it's not that bad. But, but here's the cool part. What if it is? What if this is the worst day? What if this is the saddest, most terrifying chapter in your life? I get to encourage you. Not because it's not the saddest chapter in your life, but because it's not the last chapter in your life. And whatever chapter this is does not get the last word. I love Joseph and Nicodemus got like a crazy rebate. Right? They, hey, we're going to loan Jesus a tomb and get it back. We're going to give Jesus some incense and we're going to have it. I'm going to get 75 pounds left. Look, I know some of you are in the darkest chapter of your life. The worst chapter. But take hope, my friend. This is not the last chapter. And John tells us that even the worst thing that could happen even death is not apart from or outside of God's care and goodness. Lift up your head, take joy. Not because it's not awful, but because it's not over. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you didn't come as a, a victim or a martyr you didn't even come as a hero, but you came as a sovereign Savior. That even in the worst possible of circumstances, you were working something together for our good. I thank you for encouragers like John who come along in difficult times and remind us that God has a plan and this is right along with it. May we do that even now today, that maybe for those of us in this room who come with great discouragement or doubt or cynicism, may, may John's encouragement, this is not going to stop what God has for us. Would that, would that be a, a truth that we begin to receive and believe and find joy in? Maybe for some in the room, uh, they're not believers or maybe don't even know if they're believers. Maybe today would be the day to look at Jesus and behold and, and realize that Jesus, even on the worst of days, was able to be a part of something that we celebrate even 2,000 years later. Would you give us the faith? Allow us to doubt our doubts and to embrace the supernatural possibility that Jesus can turn even the worst things into a good Friday. Would you give, give us joy and remind us that the blood that was shed that day, although it seemed awful and gruesome, was simply something you were doing for our good. And the blood that was shed that day, the wrath that was poured out that day on Jesus was not a bad thing, but it was something to keep us from being under that wrath and having that blood demanded of us. We thank you for the sacrifice given 
because of love and because of joy, because of a willingness to unite heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. Amen.